0: and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Temperance Lloyd, Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles were the last women to be executed for witchcraft in England a tragic story bound up in the superstition and politics of the late 17th century. In this episode, John Callow discusses the case of the so-called Biddeford Witches, exploring how circumstance and ill fortune led them to the gallows. Putting the questions to John was our digital section editor, Kev Lotchen.:
2: I wonder if you could give us a bit of an overview about why this period, the 17th century, is so steeped in witchcraft trials. What's the politics here?
3: Well, a lot of witchcraft trials were political, of course, as you suggest. And the first question we really want to think about about this period is why it's so late. I think in the popular mind, certainly for many of your listeners, the idea of witchcraft is rooted in the medieval period, centuries before, and witchcraft has all these cliches around it, that accusations came from below came from people who were uneducated in rural societies and didn't know any better. The sad truth when we look at the 16th and 17th centuries, the times of the great hunts, are that very often, and as in the case of Biddeford, which is why it makes this case so fascinating and so terrible, these hunts were driven by elites, people at the upper end of society, the educated Rather than the uneducated, and often the urban rather than the rural. So, all of these things are challenging, that the witch hunts are actually the product of our modernity and not an earlier, supposedly less rational age. This is the period of the Royal Society, the period of the Restoration. If we just think for a minute about the marvellous flourishing of the theatre after the return of the King, it's the court of Charles II the supposedly merry monarch, although I think uh, when J.M. Barry was thinking of Captain Hook and modelled him on Charles II, he probably just got it about right. So for all of these reasons, this period that we think of as being proto-enlightenment, more rational, more cultured, more like ourselves, is the period we have these great eruptions that lead to the last witch trials that go on in scotland until the 1690s as an outbreak in, in paisley outside glasgow um but Biddeford is the last big one in england
2: it, it's interesting that you use the word outbreak in relation to scotland and you also mentioned it um In your book, so Biddeford, as you just said, is where this takes place, and it's uh, 1682. And you write that Biddeford is an unlikely destination for the last great outbreak of witchcraft prosecutions. Why is that? What makes Biddeford such an unusual location?
3: Biddeford is a real powder keg in the late 17th century. It's gone through the Civil War, it's gone through a plague. It's a place, though, where the rich are getting richer and the poor are essentially getting poorer. is being more stratified and charity is breaking down. So we've got social problems. We've got a, a port town whose wealth is founded on maritime trade, particularly the cod fisheries up in Newfoundland where vast fortunes were made and in the American colonies along the Chesapeake River. So citizens of Biddeford, and this may sound weird to say, had far more in common in terms of shared culture, shared religious belief, kinship networks, trade and industrial links with somebody living in the new American colonies than maybe they actually did with their neighbours across Devon. The sea lanes were a far easier, far more effective way to get around, whereas the road network, particularly in the southwest, was appalling. So, the Atlantic is not an enormous boundary to people or ideas. Witch hunts very rarely are created in an instant. The sort of societal and community tensions that create a proper hunt often take 10, sometimes even 20 years. The problems that, that are boiling away originate in poverty, the refusal of charity. In the reputations a number of women get in Biddeford for being involved in the dark arts and they get a name for themselves as being witches. So the actual accusations go back more than a decade. Temperance Lloyd, the main witch as she was portrayed in all the pamphlet literature and actually in the trial records as well, had been accused as early as 1671 for killing a local farmer. She's accused again in 1679, and again fatally in 1682. So she's got form for this. She's got a name for herself in the locality. Why has she got a name for herself? Well, she's unfortunate. And that's the kernel of the story when it comes to the three women we're looking at. They're all marginal. They're marginal in terms of their gender. They're women in a patriarchal society. They're Beyond control, in the sense that they do not have a man to either protect for protect them or to speak for them. So, if we run through their backgrounds, we have Temperance Lloyd, who was of Welsh extraction, married a Welsh miner at the parish church during the Civil War period, but she's abandoned by him by sixteen sixty four. He doesn't seem to have died, and that deprives her of the rather more respectable status of being a widow, and she goes on the parish funds, and she has to beg, and she has to seek a living through charity. She had kids. They seem to have left, possibly with her husband, we don't know, but they're not there to look after her or support her. Susanna Edwards, the only one of the witches to actually be born in Biddeford and raised there, is in some ways almost almost a kind of odd one out because she has she's cursed from the very outset by being illegitimate. It's a, you know, fairly large stigma in the early modern world. She then gets lucky. She makes a good match. She's outwardly respectable until the plague comes along. She loses some of her kids, her husband dies. So she too ends up on the parish the third one, the one we really know least about, is Mary Trembles, who I think it's fair to say had pretty little going for her. She's probably from an Anglo-Irish Protestant background. Her parents, her dad, had the wonderful name of Trojan or Trudging Trembles, which I think is is quite a quite a name. Um, her parents were both beggars. They turn up in Biddeford as immigrants. They're both um, almost immediately applying for charity with their unmarried adult daughter. So it's misfortune on that lines. The women are also marginal in terms of their age. If you're old, in an age before the National Health Service, there's very little, or any kind of support, the welfare state, there's very little you can do but work yourself into the grave. Lord North, who gives a wonderful pen portrait of the women at the time of their trial. He talks about if an artist was looking for the perfect vision of wretched, downcast, squabbling, toothless, half-senile old women to fill his canvas with images of witches, he says that nowhere in the kingdom could he find three more perfect examples than these women. Everybody who commented on them overestimated their ages temperance lloyd has been put anywhere by the people in authority who ran into her somewhere between 70 or 80 in actual fact she's in her she's in her mid-60s probably so at the first time of her accusation for witchcraft she's in her mid-50s why they're so aged is they've been doing heavy manual labor and Sleeping Rough. We can only see from the people who unfortunately are on our streets today that it takes its toll very, very rapidly. And it's therefore no surprise when Temperance Lloyd is encouraged to picture a meeting with the devil during one of her Pre trial examinations. She describes meeting a black clad gentleman in Gunstone Lane in Biddeford. It's a very steep lane. If anybody goes to Biddeford or lives there, you can still manage to get out of breath slogging up it today. But the moment she talks about her absolute dejection when the devil comes to tempt her, it's when she's carrying a bundle of twigs but she's obviously gleaned from nearby fields and she's trying to probably sell them to people for firewood. So you can see that they're they're involved in harsh manual labour. We know that they all used the communal bakehouse, so they didn't even have a hearth to cook on. When they got lucky, they had enough flour that they could then take down and pay a halfpenny and get it baked into bread. But that was a rarity and a rare luxury for them. So for all these reasons, they're on the very edges of an affluent society. And their behaviour, I think you could class today in the in the popular but rather unpleasant jargon we have, is a form of aggressive begging. Temperance Lloyd is very unfortunate in the sense that she cannot she cannot go about things the right way. She's maladroit. So the specific witchcraft accusations come out of a couple of trigger events, the things that really get her to the gallows at Exeter. The first is that an unmarried, younger, relatively wealthy woman, Grace Thomas, had taken sick she 's taken sick with a pricking uh, sensation all along her back along her limbs she can't get out of bed for weeks on end when she finally does she finds that nighttime alleviates her symptoms and she begins to walk to take the night air as she describes it on one of these occasions in sixteen eighty one about six months uh, slightly more than six months before this case begins she encounters temperance Lloyd in the street now I think Lloyd probably wanted to get a coin off her to ingratiate herself. She drops to her knees, she clings to her skirt, she says, Oh, mistress, it's so great to see you so well. You know, God be praised, this is terrific. She thought she was coming over in a pleasant manner. However, for the invalid woman and her friends, the sudden attack of a rather dirty, unkempt woman who invades her personal space, seems to know rather more than she should about her ailments, they seem to have had no previous contact, completely spooks her. And spooking is the right word. So that incident sticks in Grace Thomas's mind. Uh, By June of the following year, when a magpie gets in at the house gets in at the top window where Grace had been uh, recuperating, frightens all the servants. They begin to get worried. They begin to see something poking and trying to gain entry, and they're scared out of their wits. As bad luck would have it, as they all calm down, as the household settles, as they begin to talk about it, there's a scratching and a scuffling from under the eaves. They throw the front door open, they throw the windows open, and lo and behold, they find this bundle of rags, Temperance Lloyd, literally eavesdropping on their conversation. Unfortunately, and there are a lot of unfortunates in this story, they don't apprehend her. She runs off, she takes to her heels. Now, if they had have got hold of her, and asked her what she was doing, it might have been an end to matters. But the fact that they didn't raises a suspicion. They don't know. They can project onto her anything they want to do about her motives. And the appearance of the magpie and the appearance of the beggar woman become one and the same. Why is this so terrible? Because the English, unlike... Well, the Scots have it too, but the English in particular doesn't appear much in continental witchcraft, doesn't appear in Europe, have this particular fixation with familiar spirits. The idea that the pact with the devil confers certain powers onto the witch, uh, confers, actually alters their bodily form, of which more in a minute. So the witch will, whether male or female for that matter, will grow supernumerary teats or a teat, and will be given a little demon that will suckle, or demons, who will suckle from the pap, suckle their life's blood. And these creatures can shape change. They can be magpies, they can be fleas. At Biddeford we also have, get this, pigs and a lion and a cat, a feral cat. So we get all these animals in the story. Now, let's have a think about the behaviour of these begging women at the same time. What we know about them is that on their daily grind, they would scavenge. Biddeford at this point, it hasn't been redeveloped yet. It's not the shining, beautiful commercial centre that Daniel Defoe wrote about a generation later. It's a port that's got a lot of new money, but it hasn't yet got the infrastructure to support that. So it's a place of little orchards, little market gardens, and a ramshackle quayside where stuff is just tipped. So the tobacco barrels break open, scatter their produce, pots on waiting a voyage that are broken are left, foodstuffs are allowed to build up. And of course all of this is perfect scavenging territory. Scraps of meat, scraps of food, vegetables, fruit and tobacco. We know that the women smoked because tobacco was one of the things that Uh, Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles got into trouble for for begging. So the witches, uh, the suspected witches, are in the habit of behaving in this particular scavenging fashion. What do you find in the places where the women hang out and go for their food, fighting for the same waste resources, but scavenging animals? Feral cats? Pigs? For some particular reason, the Biddeford court sessions are full of wild pigs, these things got out and rummaged and, you know, there were all kinds of problems about how the city fathers sought to control them. So we know there were these pigs causing mayhem. And, of course, what's a greater scavenger but the magpie? So, again, the, the things are linked. The behaviour of one begins to seep into the, into the mindset of, of people who believe themselves to have been accursed to have, in, to have been associated with the other. It's not as mad as it sounds, because demonology, the the science of witchcraft, if you like, we wouldn't think of it as a science today, but in the 16th, 17th century, it was developed and it was framed as one. A king of England and Scotland, James VI and I, wrote a very famous, a very erudite, very clever, but a very dangerous treatise actually called demonology. So these things are being codified, classified, pulped out, and they're not being pulped out from the bottom of society, they're filtering down from the top. People like Glanville, who's writing at the same time in defence of the Anglican Church, and a very strident defence, again rooted in examples from the West Country, about the reality of witchcraft. And this is a pretty deadly and a toxic combination. So when people start to fall ill in Biddeford, and the physicians and the apothecaries can't find a solution, and they can't Define a particular cause. What you find happening in several cases, and Grace Thomas is one of these, that the people we would associate with the educated elite, the professionals, the people in authority, saying, "Well, we've exhausted all the other avenues. Have you thought about witchcraft?"
2: Temperance Lloyd is associated with his Magpie Story. Do Susanna Edwards and Mary Trembles have their own kind of? Uh, kind of stories that make people f- worry about them, or is it kind of a guilt by
3: association? They're all scavengers in this way you've described. No, they, they ha- Well, they're all scavengers. The, the thing that's the trigger action for Tremble's and Edwards, they beg together. There's nothing... The, the Victorians managed to fashion together and subsequent radio dramatists and novelists have seen the three women acting together. There's absolutely nothing to suggest... That they were united by anything other than misfortune. There's a beautiful, well, a beautifully uh, evocative entry in the the John Andrew Dole book in the town, where the people collecting their, you know, their little bits of charity, their pennies, are noted in the order that they lined up to receive them. And at one particular point, the three women are in the queue all together. So we know they all knew each other by sight. There's no evidence that Temperance Lloyd was particularly friendly with the other two. Um, Tremble's and Edwards, though, do beg together. And when you look at the records of the poor in Biddeford, very often groups of women did this. Susanna Edwards had begged previously in groups of two and even three women. And you can see why they do that. It's protection from assault. It's... uh, Protection from sexual assault as well. They banded together. the The trigger for their case is that they turn up over the Easter of sixteen eighty two when they're particularly hungry and particularly exhausted at what they thought was a friendly door somewhere where they'd gone to a merchant's house in the town before and always got come away with something. Um, The man of the house seems to have been, you know. Kindly disposed to them and given them a halfpenny worth of tobacco. So they turn up again and ask for it. This time, unfortunately, the wife is there who shoes them away and says, Don't come back, you've got an evil reputation, I don't want to hear from you. They walk around the town, they're getting no joy, nobody will give them anything. They come back later in the day. And this time, it really is seen as an intrusion into the household and the accusations, the words fly, and the power to curse. We think about it today. Words have power, and if you're old, if you're not physically strong, if you're a woman, then you can't assert yourself or defend yourself by physical violence, but you can through verbal. And... That, in a society that believes in the power of words to curse, is explosive. The most obvious case of that, actually, is in the case of Temperance Lloyd, where, rather like the witch in the in the Disney cartoon, rocking up to Snow White's cottage, disguised as the beggar woman with the, the basket of apples, that's almost exactly how Temperance Lloyd appeared in 1681. And... She's fallen lucky in the sense that she's found the apples, stolen the apples, gleaned the apples from a nearby orchard. She's finally got something to sell and lo and behold, what happens yet again in her life, something goes really badly wrong. Her luck is just rotten, whatever else you can say about her. And a young child of a wealthy local mother steals one, runs away with it, thinks it's great. The young mum thinks it's the best laugh ever. The child's cheeky; it's all great. You can see the types—they probably have a you know a four by four today and would be barging down Islington High Street. Um, but a similar thing enacts itself. They they head off across the town. Temperance Lloyd, of course, for whom the apples and the pennies that they might have garnered for her are the difference between a bit of warmth and a bit of food, and chill cold and a completely empty stomach takes it a totally different way she follows after them she remonstrates she begins to call names and there's that danger it's that thing where you hear a curse that's just out of earshot what did that person really say if you don't hear it all it could almost sound like a spell lo and behold the child falls ill and is in, and is dead in the grave within a couple of weeks and the mother thinks back what caused the death of a child? It was the curse of the old beggar woman. So words in the early modern period, in the 17th century, have enormous power. And you can see as well, I think, the way that guilt for not giving to a beggar and pity can be channeled into hatred. It's a way of getting out your feelings of guilt or worry and making the least fortunate in society who have nothing, no power, no resources, let alone a voice for themselves, into something that appears powerful, threatening, and it's their fault. They're literally in the gutter. And this is what happens with all three of the women of Biddeford.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: So for Temperance Lloyd's earlier trial... It's unlikely that it lasted more than about 10 or 15 minutes because of the volume of cases in the ledger, either side that were pushed through through in a day. So this is machine justice. Did you do it or didn't you? We'll hear the evidence. Did you do it? Yes, I did. Well, you're guilty.
4: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down
1: and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.
2: It's a common theme in your book, how this persecution tends to be directed towards um, people of a certain age, women...
3: It's not always age and class specific, but I'm afraid to say it tends to be, and gender specific, for reasons we could talk about. But like any witch hunt, Biddeford has the power to grow for that powder keg of social tension, of suspicion, of hate, of mistrust that's been bubbling away for more than a decade to explode in everybody's faces. So there are more accusations. We have two other women, Mary Beer and Elizabeth Caddy, who are, who are accused as well. It was quite clear that witch hunters were being brought in from the surrounding countryside Um, the accusations are made in a very, very informal sort of mob rule kind of way against the women, and the local justices do not know how to cope. What they do do, though, is they treat the three poor women totally differently from the other two. We don't actually know what Beer and Caddy were accused of. They're given the name of witches, but unlike their sisters they have men to speak for them they have families they have local families they have kinship networks and they have a bit of money so when they're treated totally differently they're not arrested they're not thrown into the town jail like the three old women they're bailed and they're allowed to go back to their families to give them some time and protection they're certainly not thrown in, thrown to the mob in the way that the other women were. They're not carried off to the local church like Temperance Lloyd was and forced to recite the the Lord's Prayer in the face of a mob. They're not strip-searched like the other women for the witch's marks. And at the pre-trial records at Exeter, when essentially all the horse trading, all the bargaining was done in the pre-trial, the justices of the Peace of Biddeford and the mayor are completely prepared to throw the three beggar women on the on the fire not that not the english witches were burned they were hanged but they're perfectly prepared to let them go to the gallows they protect beer and candy so there is that air aura of class there is the importance of wealth there is the importance of connections But there is also, I think, another important reason or two important reasons why the Biddeford case didn't spiral in the way that, say, uh, the Matthew Hopkins and John Stern cases spiralled in uh, the east of England a generation before or that the Salem outbreak was allowed to gather rather like a snowball rolling down a hill. First off, the local authorities Act to get the women as far away from Biddeford as possible. Getting them down to Exeter on trial is a way of removing the immediate problem you've kind of almost solved it. There's also there's also a kind of belief that one of the effective bits of counter magic is that the moment a witch is in jail, she can't harm the victim. That's another idea that kind of grows up around this period. So they act very quickly, and they also act very quickly because they want to stop the privatisation of justice. They don't need mob rule. They don't want the witch hunters involved. The other reason that this case doesn't lead to big English witch hunts at the end of Charles II's reign in a particularly tense period, is the fact that at the moment the women go to the gallows at Heavy Tree outside Exeter, they manage, or certainly Susanna Edwards and Temperance Lloyd do, they manage to find their voice. They manage to speak for themselves. So they're confronted by Han the witch hunter And it's going to be his big day. He can make his name. He can be the one who's brought about their fall, their denunciation. And he berates them on the scaffold. Now, you can imagine all of this. It doesn't take much imagination at all to set the scene. That you would have a large, probably baying crowd out, literally out for blood. You had the knowledge in the minds of all three women that there were only a few minutes between themselves and eternity to come. So it's a loaded situation for them. As, f- as far as is recorded, Mary trembles, leaves the world with as little trouble as she'd entered it. You know, she's, she's the silent partner in all of this. Susanna Edwards, though, has the 40th Psalm sung which, you know, as with most of the Hebrew psalms, is a wonderful work of poetry. But it's incredibly loaded. It's talking about yourself. It's a very personal psalm. Talking about your sins, talking about your failings before God, but then saying, I'm not going to be judged by the crowd. So I think that's a powerful symbol she sends out. Then Temperance Lloyd is remarkably eloquent when she faces down hard that there's an exchange of words and you can see in the records her confusion because she's saying well yes i did i did say some awful words to the child with the, with the apple i could have occasioned that child's death i could have done other really bad things but i'm absolutely incapable because of course the accusations have grown and grown and grown against them i can't raise storms i never did that I'm not sure about the meetings with the devil. I certainly never caused a young lad to fall out of the rigging of a ship and kill himself. I don't know what you're talking about. So the witch hunter cannot extract the right confession at the right moment to make his career. Worse than that, an exit of justice, and you can imagine this, the two companions that have already gone to the scaffold and are hanging either dead or dying a few feet above her head. And at the moment she goes on the ladder, the theologians, the elites, the justices decide to have another go and begin the questioning all over again. And they get exactly the same answers. So they don't get the result that they want. And I think for that reason, because the confessions were not explicit enough, because there was not a smoking gun, Really beyond the hatred that Temperance Lloyd in, uh, inspired, that it was it was all done by half measures. There are three pamphlets that come out where the witches are, are fully demonised. There's a rather wonderful ballad that was published, possibly a few months later, to a rather haunting, well-known tune, "Fortune My Foe," which was often used to set spooky, we're coming up to Halloween kind of witchcraft songs around. But after that, the women's stories die and fade away. When people are defending witchcraft belief in the 18th century, at the time of the abolition of the laws against it, they're not ever really cited in all the in all the trial literatures in all the accounts of why you really should believe witchcraft so something goes badly wrong and han doesn't get to make his his name as a witch hunter and sinks back into the well deserved obscurity from which he had come
2: is there any way they could have got out of this then because I, my understanding of it is they confessed mm-hmm. to a certain extent mm. that they were witches they then at the time of execution, they kind of, well, Temperance Lloyd dials back from
3: that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, the, the, problem, the problem, as you very rightly say, is that they confess to it. At Temperance Lloyd's earlier trial, she has the wit to deny it and walks free. So a guilty conviction was always going to happen when they confessed actually, what could Judge Raymond have done? How else? Because witchcraft was on the statute book. It was an offence. It was a thing. It was a thing that demanded the death penalty. So he's got very little room for manoeuvre. There was, however, one big get-out. You had to send up to Whitehall, to the government, to have these sentences approved or quashed. Now, in one of the really famous cases in 1662 in Scotland of Isabel Gowdy, one of the most famous witches there was, there's quite a lot of evidence, actually, to suggest that the Scots Privy Council quashed the conviction and she just slipped away, um, you know, to to get on with her life. This could have happened for the Biddeford witches, and this is where uh, a very cunning... A very mealy-mouthed, a very subtle, and an utter, utterly political letter from Lord North really sinks them. He has to write to the Secretary of State in London to get the, the executions approved. And he starts off, it's a very chatty letter. He's talking about their jaunt through the West Country. He's talking about staying with the local Tory gentry. He's recommending people for promotion. He's talking about how the king's agents are doing their work. Then he comes on to the witches and he says in this rather confiding tone, you know, we're you and I are gentlemen, we're, we're rational. We don't believe in all this nonsense about witchcraft, but these three women have got themselves into this state and the mob has taken up against them. Um. If we don't do anything about it, this could go really badly wrong for the King's service, that the Whigs, who were the opposition um, to Charles II by that point, might take up arms. Now, bear in mind this is only three years out from the Monmouth Rebellion, that the West Country is absolutely solid for Monmouth, that Biddeford is a Monmouth town. You can see that temperatures are running high. But what he does subtly is... He ignores the actual case for justice, as in the three women are either witches or they're not. He's saying, we know they're not. You know, let's get over that. This is all a bit a bit silly, isn't it? But then he says, for reasons of state, they have to hang. And what he does, I think, inexcusably, is he politicises the mob, with nowhere knowing who composed the Exeter mob, who were certainly riled up and had a bloodlust against the witches. They believed all sorts, that the witches still in jail were doing all kinds of magic about the town. But it's Lord North's letter saying, for the good of the state, these three women must hang, that elevates them to the state almost of political criminals that actually gets them to the gallows. And that's the terrible thing about this case.
2: Another point you make in the book is that stays of execution are commonplace, not Mm. even just for witchcraft, but even Mm -hmm. for murderers. But then in this case, that can't happen. Is this the reason why?
3: That's exactly the reason why. The moment Lord North signs and seals that letter... They're as good as dead because he's giving the confidential report. So Judge Raymond, who was always always done down, who actually delivered the guilty verdict, I think is less culpable than North's brother judge. Um, and it's one of the one of the strange quirks of history because the North brothers have told the tale that they do everything in their power to kind of literally wash their hands. But that one letter remains, and that one letter condemned the witches.
2: They don't stay condemned throughout history. History rehabilitates them. I wonder if we could talk a bit about that, Mm -hmm. how that happens.
3: Well, history rehabilitates them for a number of reasons. The first thing is that there were enough courageous men and they were mainly men because that's how society was ordered but some women as well who took a stand against the the witchcraft statutes that were overturned in 1735 to 1736 there, and under the impact of the beginnings of the european enlightenment you can't underestimate the the difference created by that social and intellectual movement So that's the first thing. When you begin to have a system that puts individual rights, individual liberties, the idea of social justice in the frame, crimes like witchcraft begin to look more and more horrific, and rightly so. The second big change that's allied to that and comes a bit earlier really is happening during this period this is why there's the the last kind of frenzy of witch trials is that the vision of god is changing that the old testament idea of a god who could throw around thunderbolts and who intervenes directly in human affairs is going and the idea of what we call a transcendent god the god who steps out of history somebody who doesn't intervene on a day-to-day basis when you've got that the devil begins to retreat into the background. There's not this great adversarial battle fighting its way out every single day for every single human life. And that is really striking at the roots of witch belief. Where the devil goes into the background, you're less likely to have witchcraft taken far more seriously. So we've got changes in religious thought, a greater sense of rationalism, the, um, you, can, you can overdo the idea of the triumph of science and the scientific revolution, but I think where you've got the development of professions and medical professions throughout the 18th into the 19th century, witchcraft recedes. So we've got all that in a great big bundle that we call the European Enlightenment. We've then got the Romantic movement across Europe, that begins to look at the gothic, begins to look at the figure of the witch, and begins to think that maybe, actually, there's something quite interesting here. There's something a bit spooky, there's something a little bit dangerous, a little bit edgy. So the witch is stripped back, the rags are pulled from her. She's cleansed. Most famously, there was an amazing French historian called Jules Michelet who writes a book uh, in the 19th century, mid-19th century in France just called The Witch. And that actually is the root, I think, of the way many people... Certainly many people in the modern witchcraft New Age movements think about the witch, come to her today. The idea that she is something not to be feared or to be hated, but to be owned and celebrated. The woman as rebel, the woman who owns her sex, the woman who is independent. And largely it comes out of the pen of Michelet in the the Romantic movement. The third component is the, the rise of the second wave of feminism, that starting off in, the, in America in the late 1960s, early 1970s, a lot of academic women writers at the cutting edge of feminist theory owned the figure of the witch and used them as an archetype to explain how women had suffered, how they'd suffered through the medical profession, how they'd suffered in terms of their careers, how they'd suffered through misogyny, all things that you can you can't really argue with. You can take it to extremes and take the argument to extremes, but essentially they were making a very valid critique in terms of the gender politics of their times. So you get to a, a space by the 1970s, early 1980s, where the figure of the witch has been completely transformed, and those components come together to suddenly make witches as a as a collective, and our three Biddeford witches as examples, seem to be, as they were, the victims of injustice, the victims of hatred, and maybe people who ought to be celebrated rather than reviled.
2: It's an absolutely fascinating story. One element I'd like to jump back to, as you said much Mm -hmm. earlier on, that Biddeford seemed to have more in common with the American Mm -hmm. colonies. Yeah. Do ideas of witchcraft translate across to... The colonies and back, or are these situations developing quite separately.
3: Well, the the ideas obviously spill out of England into New England into America as we now know it. That the witch is established there through English archetypes. the The thing then that the terror of it actually is that which belief ferries to and from. America to England and Scotland, and then back again. So there is a cross-fertilisation. It's like any solipsism. When you believe in a system that's closed off, one thing believes begets another. It's, it's like modern conspiracy theories that we're, we're so rife with today. So if you look at the specifics of Salem you have a community that's very different from Biddeford in actual fact. It's a frontier community. Um, You've got grabs for land. You've got insecurity. You've got a very homogeneous Puritanism that has been embedded there that is militant and that is worried because as a frontier society, starvation is very close and, Native American raids are also a a factor of life. So you've got this whole hodgepodge going on, but the significant thing that is brought over from England that lights up Salem and occasions those women's deaths is the belief in spectral evidence. Now, this is something that's established in England by one of the towering figures in in the legal profession who'd served the monarchy at the time of the Restoration, a guy called Sir Matthew Hale. And Hale says that basically you can have spirit evidence. Now, what does that mean? It means that the onus of proof is really on the on the victim. They've got to make a really good case why they're not a witch rather than the accused saying why they are. So at both Hale's famous uh, rulings and in Salem the accusers make out that they can see spirits animating them, pinching them, pricking them, kicking them, hurting them, doing evil actually in the courtroom. Now, you can imagine that how do you defend yourself from that? If people believe that others can see, and nobody else can, invisible entities gliding around the courtroom doing bad stuff, how can you defend yourself? And once that is permitted at Salem, the deaths follow. When that is put a stop to, the prosecutions begin to end because it begins to touch in the American colonies, the the top end of society. In an English context, we have Sir John Holt, who is the complete counterpoint to Hale, who stops it, through a series of cases that begin in the West Country in the 1690s and run on to his most famous ones in London in 1700, where a poor woman, Sarah Morduck or Mordyke, is the victim of the mob, a particularly unpleasant group of apprentices, and Holt completely turns the tables because he makes the burden of proof upon the accuser. And when the accusers can't deliver, when it's proved that they're fraudulent he punishes them rather than the victim. So you've got a complete legal transformation, and that's incredibly important for actually ending the witch hunts. To come back to your starting point about the Americas, the, the two places, England and the developing American colonies, are inextricably linked in this period. They're linked through kinship networks, they're linked through Puritan belief, They're linked through print. They're linked through trade. And of course, witchcraft sells. Witchcraft explains misfortune. And that's why it's so toxic and damaging.
2: Once uh, these three women
3: are taken to Exeter,
2: what happens to them there? What kind of defence do they have, if any?
3: Well, the tantalising thing is we don't have a trial record of what happens at Exeter. We've got a very full preliminary examination record that happened in Biddeford. The papers that were sent along by the justices there up to Exeter as pre-trial reports. So we've got um, verbatim accounts of what the women said in their defence and what the accusers levied at them. All we have from Exeter is the report of Lord North of the case and later the report of his brother, the letter to the Home Secretary as well. So we can reconstruct this as follows. The hue and cry is against the women in the town. There are three notorious witches locked up in the castle. When the coaches of the two circuit court judges, Judge Raymond and Lord North, get to the drawbridge at Exeter, you can actually see where it was today before the gatehouse. It's where the plaque that was put up by a well, through the efforts of a women's group, um, very recently sits today, the horses refuse to go any further. They wouldn't cross the drawbridge. They try and bolt. They stand stock still, and the mob thinks this is because the witches have cursed them. They put a spell on the horses, so they're, they're you know they're further enraged. There is some evidence to suggest that the women were spoken to. Um, in the cells that they were you know they were they were minor celebrities people visited and gawked at them the trial itself is, is very difficult to reconstruct there may have been an element of spectral evidence used against them the idea that that spirits were about in the courtroom essentially i think it's fair to say that they were convicted because they didn't deny the evidence put against them and we have to think of an early modern trial not being like modern ones, that these cases on circuit courts were pushed through at an incredible rate. So for Temperance Lloyd's earlier trial, it's unlikely that it lasted more than about 10 or 15 minutes because of the volume of cases in the ledger, either side, that were pushed through in a day. So this is machine justice did you do it or didn't you? We'll hear the evidence. Did you do it? Yes, I did. Well, you're guilty. So for those reasons, the fact that the women squabbled, the women admitted to everything, it's a very sorry case and it's a very sorry story of what happened to them at Exeter. And you can see, frightened, a little bit gullible, absolutely friendless. The, the, the rub of the case is, and it's essential charity, is that if one person, Just one person, man or woman, had spoken up in their defence at any point over six months, the last six months of their lives, they would not have gone to the gallows. Nobody did, so they hanged. And that, in a way, I think, is the the contemporary resonance, the, the moral that runs through it, that it only takes one voice for decency and clemency to make a change sometimes, and that the women were denied that.
0: That was John Callow, whose book on the Biddeford Witches, The Last Witches of England, is available now, published by Bloomsbury. And if you're interested in the history of witchcraft, then be sure to check out our recent series on the Salem Witch Trials. Just search for Salem on your podcast feed to bring that up. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.